Sermon text this morning is taken from Hebrews chapter 11, starting with verse 23 and going down through verse 31. So there's just a portion that we're going to consider. Last week, Josh preached on the, the, uh, the first part of the chapter, and we're going to kind of do some things right in the middle. And this sermon might be a little bit different than other sermons you've heard me preach, because this passage is really illustrations of what the writer of Hebrews has been talking about. Remember we said, it seems like the book of Hebrews maybe was a sermon. So there's exposition. He explains about a lot of things about Christ. He gives illustrations of what he's talking about, and he has application. And so we're in a passage here where it seems like there's illustration. So I'm going to actually use a lot of illustrations to illustrate the illustrations. Makes sense, right? Made sense to me. Let me read for you, starting with verse 23 in the book of Hebrews. And I'll read down to verse 31. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, where he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do so, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Let me tell you a tale of two schools. Early in my ministry, I'd been in South Carolina for a couple of years right out of seminary. Then I went to uh, New Orleans as a church planner. We had a uh, our first child, our daughter, Stephanie, was ready to start school. So there was one school that was not far from where we lived. And the church that um, the school belonged to had a very, very, very strong um, sense of evangelism. They were known for being a very evangelistic church. And so we thought that might be a good place to put our daughter. So we put her there. And then we learned some things as the school year went on, her first year, that um, made us a little bit uncomfortable. Just before Thanksgiving, they had a, a promotion. They wanted to have a lot of people come to their Sunday school. So they offered two things to entice children to bring their friends to Sunday school. One, that if they came to Sunday school on that Sunday before Thanksgiving, they'd get to meet Santa Claus. Well, you know, who could resist that? You know? So come meet Santa Claus and bring your friends. 
And if they got a certain number of people in their Sunday school program that Sunday, they would not have school that week of Thanksgiving. Now, I just got off at noon on Wednesday, but no school the whole year. Sadly, our daughter was not very happy with us because she didn't make it to their Sunday school class. Um, but we said, no, we have our own church, our own program. And uh, that seems a little, little gimmicky to me. We don't necessarily go in for that kind of thing. It was only a couple of weeks after that, we went to their Christmas program. I've told some of you this before, but I'll tell you again. Went to their Christmas program. And she, was, she had a part. All the students had a part. They did everything. I didn't know what the program was about until we got there. And I was looking through the bullets and they had and everything. So this Christmas program was about the donkey that Mary rode from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. Okay. And the donkey would wander. He'd get into all kinds of trouble and things going on the trip down there. So it was cute and kind of funny. But what surprised me the most was, I don't think Christ was even mentioned in the whole program. And it was only about this donkey. And then the pastor gets up and does an altar call and invites people to come forward if they've been moved and commit their life to Christ. And I'm sitting there thinking, there was absolutely nothing that would even tell anybody about Jesus. So why would he expect people to come and commit their life to Christ? Her second year, we had her in a different school, and she was there for several years, went through their program. It was a Missouri Synod Lutheran school. And um, they had a Christmas program, so we went to that. Some of you have been to Emmaus Road. They have like a 12-page you know, worship guide. Their Christmas program was like that. It was maybe 12 pages. It was nothing but scripture and hymns. I remember several things. One, it started right on the dot, the starting time. It ended exactly 60 minutes later. Their principal was a German descent, tall, six foot three, blonde haired guy. You could see him in an SS uniform, I suppose. He was just, man, it was just, it was, he was by the book. They didn't have an altar call. But I remember thinking, this was nothing but the gospel. They started back in Genesis with the fall went through an, any number of Old Testament passages. They got to the New Testament, the birth of Christ, Christ's ministry, and they even ended in the book of Revelation in an hour. And I said, where was the gospel really demonstrated? Where did you really see the gospel? It wasn't in the donkey. The poor creature couldn't help it. He was just uh, the mercy of the writers, I suppose. But that Lutheran school shared the gospel with all of those who were present. This has gotten me to think about faith. We call people to put their faith in Christ. And we try to explain who Christ was, what he did, and have faith in him. And as we have faith in Christ's work, as he died as our substitute, rose again, all of those things, we trust him for our salvation. What do people who are not Christians trust in? Karma. You do good things, good things will happen to you. You do bad things, bad things will happen to you. Does that happen? Sometimes. 
When I was in college, I was walking to chapel one day and I almost tripped over a wad of money on the ground. So I picked it up, it was $40. That's, that's almost a little over $300 in today's money back in, it was $40 back in, $40 back in 1969. So near the bookstore, I go into the bookstore, has somebody cashed a check or gotten a bunch of money back from purchasing them? No, it's been pretty quiet this morning. But a note on the bulletin board, money has been found. Describe it, it's yours, you know, that kind of thing. No takers. So I went to the dean of students, being the honest soul that I am, and I said, I found this money, explained everything. He said, okay, I'll, I'll keep seeing what I can find out. Put it in an envelope, put it in his drawer. The rest of that school year, that semester, nobody claimed it. So I graduated. My folks were there. The car was loaded. We were ready to leave the campus. I go up to the dean's office. I walk in. He said, you want the money? I said, yes. <laughs> so he took the envelope, gave it to me, and I, I went home. Okay. Had I done something that I know of that was payback? No, not that I know of. It was just in God's providence that happened. Some people believe in the goodness of human nature. I think we've seen too many things in this world to say that's not something we want to put our trust in. Paganism, spirits, good things, saving the world, all this kind of stuff. No, that's, there's too many things there that don't seem to really work work in people's favor. Well, the writer of Hebrews talks in this passage about several individuals or groups of people and how they acted by faith. So what we see is that Moses and the others mentioned in this passage were waiting for Christ. That's what the book of Hebrews says. And they demonstrated their faith in those promises of God that they knew. Now, I, do, I want to talk a little bit more about faith, because we see several times in this passage, by faith. What is faith? Well, if we turn back to chapter, or the first verse of chapter 11, we have a definition which is given to us. And Josh talked about this some when he preached on the passage. Uh, Josh, the pastor, says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Then in verse 3, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, Moses and these other people in the passage lived in Egypt. Egypt had their own idea of how the world came into existence. It was pretty lewd and crude. I won't even say how. How they believe it happened. You can look that up online. We are often called to faith. Let's look at faith from our perspective. There are several things that are necessary for someone to have true faith. One, you have to have knowledge. You have to have a content of material that you know about. That's one of the reasons why our church and other churches spend so much time teaching the scriptures so that you know what the Bible actually says. Then you have to give assent to that 
content that is true. Not just know it, but actually believe and recognize that it's true. And then third, you have to trust in that content that you believe is true, which points to Christ, and you trust Christ for your salvation based on what you know about who he is and what he has done. When I was about nine years old, we moved to Huntsville, Alabama. We went to a small mission church, met in the same elementary school. My sister and I went to school. We would have some meetings in homes, like home Bible studies, that kind of thing. One, one time there was a missionary from some South American country. I don't remember his name. I don't remember the country he was from. But he talked about his work, showed slides. You probably don't even know what slides are, but they were an early form, early version of a, a PowerPoint, let's say. So he showed pictures of where he had worked. So afterwards, there was some refreshments, had a piece of cake, went and sat down on a couch, was eating my cake, just minding my own business. And this man came over and sat down beside me, started talking to me and asked how old it was, what grade it was, and all those kind of things. And he said, you know, said you heard my presentation. said, do you trust Christ as your Savior? That was a pretty blunt question. Do you trust Christ as your Savior? And I was honest, as I've said before, I am. I said, no, I don't. So he said, well, you need to. And he gave me a verse, Romans 10, 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He said, you need to call on God and ask for salvation. It wasn't long after that. It was before Christmas, before Easter. My sister and I were playing out in our backyard, and we were kind of reenacting those events of Jesus last week. So we had um, taken some sticks and tied into three crosses and had those set up. And we had a little place where there was a trial going on, and Jesus was there. and and then, uh, with, you know, the mob calling it crucify him. Then we took rocks and built up this little tomb where we could put his body after he was crucified and everything. And as we're doing all of that, I realized as we were playing, I knew all of these things about the gospel, about who Jesus was and what he had done. I believe they were true. And I remember thinking, God, I want you to save me, forgive me of my sins, because I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Now, I was only nine years old, but I knew that. Was that faith as strong as it was later? No, but it was faith. I believed. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Let me give you some other examples. I said I was going to give a lot of examples. When I was in seminary, I taught math and science for two years. And out of seminary, I taught for two years in Christian school in South Carolina. So if you, and it's, in three of those years, I taught biology. So if you said, Bill, do you know the basic tenets of the theory of evolution? I say, yes. And I could list a number of those for you. Evolution. Okay. If you said, Bill... Do you believe those things are true? I would say, no, I do not. So they say, do you believe or trust in evolution? I would say, no, I do not. 
I know the content. I don't believe it's true, and I don't trust it for anything. Okay. I don't know why this next thing kind of fascinates me, but it does. You have probably seen these glass walkways. I seem like a lot of these are maybe in China up against some mountain where they're, you know, several thousand feet below the valley floor. Some are bridges across uh, chasms and so forth. Some are on buildings that go around. Well, the idea is that you, you have a glass walkway, kind of like a sidewalk. You look through the glass and you see the valley for 3,000 feet below you. And there's always people who are on that who freak out and they're laying down and they're crying because they're afraid to go on. I don't know why I think that's funny, but it is. So if you ask them before they started, do you believe that the best engineers in the country use all their expertise to design this walkway and that the best manufacturers produce this glass, which will hold who knows how many hundreds of pounds per square foot? They would say yes. Do you trust this well enough to step on it and walk? Some people say, yes, I do. But a lot of people said, no, I will not do that. Or they think they have faith and they step out. And, and some of those things in China are designed so that when you step on it, the glass looks like it's cracking. Yeah. And they just, no, they freak out. They lay down. They sit up against the wall. They're crying. They'll be walking by and kind of chuckling at them and so forth. Okay. They know the content. They can assent that it's true, but they don't trust it. Okay. So that's, we've done that. Now let's look at a passage. We find that there are five different either individuals or groups that are referred to in the passage. There's Moses' parents. There's Moses himself. There are the people of Israel who left Egypt. People of Israel who go into the promised land. Those are two different groups, by the way, because all those people who left Egypt, except for those under 20, died in the wilderness. So you had a new crop of folks who were going into Canaan after the 40, days, 40 years in the wilderness. And you have Rahab, who's mentioned. All right, so Moses' parents. A little bit later in the book of Exodus, from where Moses starts out, we learn their names. Amram and Jochebed. All right, I guess good, good names. Amram and Jochebed. They were descendants of Levi. So we know the story that the uh, Israelites were, were multiplying like rabbits, as it were. They were just, they were just more, too many of them. So the king said to the midwives, and in the passage in Exodus, two were mentioned. They were probably maybe the head of some guild or whatever. I think there were more than two midwives. But he said, uh, when you go to a house and a baby boy is born, you kill that child. And they knew that was wrong. They wouldn't do it. So Pharaoh calls them in, say, hey, what's going on? I told you I wanted you to kill these babies when they're born, but you're not doing that. They said, well, you know, <laughs> you know, the Egyptian women, they're, they're kind of, you know, they're pampered and, and they're weak and they're you know, real sweet and everything. But, you know, they're in labor for hours and hours. and They're screaming their heads off and everything. These Israelite women are like that. I mean, they're, they're tough. You know, they give birth. You know, they don't scream or nothing. They, we get there and the baby's already born. And they're in the kitchen making lunch for everybody. Then they go out to the fields and work afternoon. You know, there's nothing we can do. 
Now, the weird thing is, Pharaoh just seemed to believe him. He said, well, okay, yes, yeah, all right. <laughs> so then it was upon the parents to kill their children, their male children, if when they were born. That was another edict. They were to throw them in the Nile. So Moses is born. It says that he was beautiful. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. I mean, probably no parent ever has thought their child was not beautiful, but, but they saw something in this child that they knew there was something special about this child. So they hid him for three months. Then Jochebed made a basket. She waterproofed it the best she could, put Moses in there, went to a place along the Nile where the Pharaoh's daughter and her entourage would come and bathe, probably a kind of a crocodile-free zone. And she put the basket in there among the reeds and had Moses' older sister Miriam kind of watch out and see what was going on. I've heard people say she sailed him down the Nile. She did not sail him down the Nile. She put him in a, a relatively safe place, and somebody was kind of watching what was going on. Pharaoh's daughter comes along. And she hears the baby crying and they, you know, they go get him and she realizes it's a Hebrew child. And then bang, all of a sudden Miriam comes up. Hey, you got a little baby there. You need somebody to nurse the baby and all of that. I know just the person. And so she gets her mother, mother comes, she gets paid to watch her own child. And, and then at the right time, she takes the child to Pharaoh's daughter and drops him off. And, and um, that's kind of the end of that. Now did, Pharaoh's daughter, does she have enough common sense to say, hey, and this is a little bit suspicious. There's this Hebrew baby. This Hebrew girl says, hey, I can get somebody for you. And then this woman comes along. Oh, I'll take care of him. Sure. No problem. Um, well, after what happened with Pharaoh, maybe, you know, maybe she was clueless and say, hey, this is really a coincidence. You know, maybe karma. I, I wanted a child and here he is. You know, maybe just maybe this. I don't know. Any rate, he grows up in the household of Pharaoh's daughter. Then when he's older, he realizes he is not Egyptian, he is a Hebrew. Now I've read a number of articles where people think that Moses was actually being groomed to be Pharaoh. So he was not an insignificant person in Egypt. But he gave up those things because he wanted to be identified with the Israelites and the people of God. So what did he give up? He gave up status. The son of Pharaoh's daughter then just described who his mother was. It's a, it's a position. It was a position. He gave up status. He gave up the enjoyment, the pleasures of sin. Now, if you do much reading, you'll realize the Egyptians were a pretty randy lot. So one of the pharaohs had, I forget how many wives and 200 concubines and all this kind of stuff. So the pleasures of sin were almost without limit, I suppose. But he said, I don't want any of that. And he gave up material affluence. Now, we know from some of the discoveries that have been made in the tombs of the pharaohs, how affluent they were. A lot of the tombs had been desecrated by grave robbers, but uh, King Tut's tomb was found intact. And when they went into that burial chamber, they found that it contained about 2,500 
pounds of gold. 2,500 pounds of gold. That's a lot of gold. So he gave all that stuff up. So what did he gain? He gained, it says, a greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. A greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. An association with the people of God and the reproach of Christ. They may say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like a good bargain. He gives up all this other stuff. He gets this. But he, he knew God. And he wanted to be associated with God and what he was doing. So he was willing to give up those things. Now in the, uh, the text here, as we look at um, verse 26, the latter part, it says, he was looking to the reward. He was looking to Christ, as it were. The, the word that's used there for looking to could sometimes be translated looking ahead, but it literally means look away to. Look away to. So he looked away to Christ. Some of you might remember that movie, National Treasure, Nicolas Cage, and I forget who else, but uh, it's kind of cheesy, but it's, I enjoy it. So I've, I've seen it a number of times. Well, in this story, there's this treasure hunter, Ben Gates. His father comes along later and helps him. And he's searching for all these clues to where this unimaginable treasure has been hidden by the, the Knights Templar. It turns out it was under the streets of New York. Who would have thought? So there's a lot of things that goes on. He steals the um, Declaration of Independence and uh, the curator there, Abigail, initially he was opposed to him and she comes along and is helping him. They finally find the treasure. They go into the treasure room and you see that right in front of them, there's a whole bunch of gold and stuff like that. There's statues and all this, there's a lot of stuff. Then he takes a torch, Ben takes a torch and lights these wooden troughs filled with oil. And as that fire catches down two lanes, more and more of this vast cavern is exposed until finally they're looking out over this immense treasure that's all the treasures of the world that have been hidden here for quite a few years. Imagine, instead of Ben Gates, that's Moses standing there looking at that treasure. And he says, all this will be mine. And his gaze is averted, and he stops looking at that treasure, and he looks over. Christ. He looks away to Christ. That's what the passage is telling us. He knew what all the good stuff was in this world, and he rejected that in order to look to Christ. A negative example of this would be Peter, like in Matthew 14. Jesus had been preaching. It got late. The disciples took a boat. They were going to go across the Sea of Galilee. The wind was contrary. They're rowing. It's pretty kind of stormy. Jesus goes up into a mountain and prays. In the middle of the night, he's walking on the water, going out of the boat. The disciples see this, they say, a ghost, you know what? And they're scared to death. And Jesus says, it's just me. 
He said, Lord, if it's really you, let me come to you on the water. So Jesus said, come on. So he hops out of the boat. He's walking on the water. He's looking at Jesus. And then all of a sudden, in my mind, I see a gust of wind hits him in the face. And maybe a wave kind of breaks and he gets splashed with water. And he stops looking at Jesus. And he looks away to this distraction. The waves, the wind. And he starts to sink. And he calls out, Lord, save me. And Jesus grabbed him, and they get in the boat, and everything's good. He looked away from Jesus to something else. Moses looked away from things to Jesus. It says that by faith, Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the king. Now, I think that one of the things Moses was trained in as a son of Pharaoh's daughter was combat. Because Pharaoh would lead the armies into battle. At this time, the Egyptian army was a pretty fierce uh, fighting force. Remember, he killed an Egyptian, and that's what got him in trouble. Uh, the king found out, Pharaoh found out, so Moses fled. So he goes to Midian. Midian's across the Sinai Peninsula. Um, there's part of Midian that's on the, the eastern side of the Sinai Peninsula, and there's part of it that's on the Eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba, I think it is. So he goes, he sits down by this well, and these girls come getting water for their, their sheep and everything. Then these shepherds come up, trying to drive them away in order to get water first. So Moses fights them and drives them off. And so the, the girls get their water first. They get home. Their father says, hey, I came home so early. They said, well, we were at the well. This Egyptian fought off the shepherds and had to swallow water and water our sheep, so we're home now. And so it's kind of humorous. We just say, where is the man? You know, go get him. Bring him in. Let's give him something to eat. Let's take care of him. It's a good deal. So Moses stayed there with Jethro and his family and married one of the daughters and all of that. What did Moses know? I say that you had to have content. Well, like Amram and Jochebed probably knew the oral traditions had been passed on. They knew about maybe the creation by God and Adam and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of that, and Joseph. Moses knew that, plus he knew a little bit more because of his own experience. He'd been at the burning bush. So this bush that didn't burn up, God spoke to him out of the bush. He goes back to Egypt. He does these miracles in front of Pharaoh, and then he saw the 10 plagues that God brought upon Egypt. So that last, that last thing at the time of the Passover, where the death of the firstborn of man and animals take place, unless the blood of the Passover lamb was on the doorpost and the, the frame of the, the door of the house. So he had some content that he was aware of. And he was trusting God to do what he said. And he was all in committed to following God. And then after the death of the firstborn of everybody in Egypt, except for the Israelites, Egyptians said, hey, you know, get out of here. We, you're, we're done with you. And they said, how about some gold and stuff to take with us? And so they gave him a lot of stuff and they went out rich. Well, then they get down to 
the Red Sea. And all of a sudden, you say, hey, wait a minute, we can't go anyplace. We're up against the sea. And they know the Egyptians are on their way. And um, God stayed between the Egyptians and the Israelites there for a time. And, and the passage in um, Exodus that talks about this is sort of interesting. At least I think it's interesting. If you've ever dealt with people very much, you know exactly what's going on. So in Exodus 14, I'll start with verse 10. I'll read down about verse 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, it's because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you while we were in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It had been better to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Fear not. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. He says, I think he's saying, just shut up. God's going to protect you. Just stop all of your yammering and, and complaining and just watch what he's going to do. And the Lord tells Moses, lift up your staff. He lifted up. The waters of the Red Sea parted. Israelites go across on dry ground. Egyptians follow, the water closes in on them, and they're drowned. An interesting fact from um, history is that during this time period, the Egyptian army was on the move. I mean, every year they were going out to conquer and, and be victorious and everything. And then there was a time, several years, where nothing happened. And it may well be that that was the time they were rebuilding their army, which had been destroyed at the Red Sea. Did all the people have faith? No, but probably a remnant of the people did. And they listened to Moses and they said, we're going with Moses. We're going to cross the Red Sea on dry land and woe be to the Egyptians. Unfortunately, later, when it came time for these same people to go into the land of Canaan, they, they wouldn't do it. They were afraid. Ten spies came back to other people too, too much for us. We couldn't do it. Two spies, Joshua and Caleb said, we can with the Lord said, we can take this country. So the Lord had them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Everybody who was over 20 years of age died, except for Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. So the second time around, they come up to Canaan. They had won some battles. They go into Canaan. The Lord says, I want you to march around Jericho six days. March around it. Don't say anything. Just march around. Seventh day, go around seven times. And then when the priests blow their horns, everybody shout, and the walls came tumbling down. They went straight in, and they ransacked the city. Only people who were spared were Rahab and her family. She was the one who had welcomed the spies 
when they came in, and there's a passage uh, that was read, you know, Jesse read earlier. She knew what God had done. She had heard those things and she believed it. She had the content. She believed it to be true. And she trusted. And they said, save me and my family. And they said, we will. And she, they did. So the rest of the city died. But Rahab was spared along with her family. And as you know, later she became one of the, the ancestors of King David. And one of the ancestors of Christ. So she was somebody who didn't know her faith. Let me learn, or let me turn to um, the last part of the what I want to say, which is about lessons learned. What do we learn from this passage in Hebrews? Well, one is don't be afraid, but <laughs> have confidence in God and in Christ. Ephesians 5, 1 says, be imitators of God and not of the world. So that's one thing. Don't be afraid. Two, act on your faith. Act on your faith. What does that mean by acting? Well, talk to people. We know that we're supposed to share our faith with other people. The only caveat I might have is don't, don't act like a raving lunatic when you do that. Talk to people in sort of normal voices, uh, you know, kind of get to know them and things like that. Remember, Christ is the one that you trust. We always want to look to him and be obedient to him. Remember when the angel saved Lot and his family from Sodom? The one command, don't look back. And Lot's wife looked back and she was killed. So her heart was in Sodom. She didn't want to leave, and it cost her her life. Now, just because you are not afraid and you act on faith doesn't mean that everything's going to be just hunky-dory. I know many of you know of C.S. Lewis. I like a lot of his writings. Lewis was at Oxford University for almost 30 years. He never made full professor there. His friend J.R.R. Tolkien, the wonder what Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, said, once told a Lewis scholar that Oxford Dons, or the faculty and all that, could be forgiven for just about anything except writing outside their subject or writing popular works of theology. Lewis, in 1933, wrote The Pilgrim's Regress where he kind of um, attacked sarcastically some of the beliefs of the faculty at that time. He later wrote The Pop Problem of Pain, which my wife is uh, listening to the audiobook of that right now. And then he wrote The Screwtape Letters, which are kind of interesting. They're, um, they're written from a perspective of a, de of a demon who is trying to coach a, a younger demon on how to mess in the lives of Christians. And then the BBC enlisted him to give a series of lectures, which became the book Mere Christianity. It was overtly evangelistic, which for his colleagues was even worse than the others. It was one thing to write dispassionately. It was another thing to try to persuade people to one's faith. 
Lewis had been teaching at Oxford since 1925. As late as 1951, he was outvoted for Oxford's prestigious poetry chair, poetry chair by 194, 90 vote, 194 votes to 173. And Lewis's brother, Warney, noted in his diary that he was surprised how anti-Christian so many peoples had toward his brother. And he was informed that one elector had voted against Lewis simply because he had written the screw tape letters. But Lewis persevered. It was during that time that Lewis said that's kind of when he was writing the Chronicles of Narnia. And then he changed after 30 years to Cambridge University and taught there for a period of time and was made a professor. So you say, with C.S. Lewis, I like his writings. He's able to explain the Christian faith in ways that are sort of understandable. But he had a lot of persecution in the process. I'm going to tell you something that I experienced a number of years ago that uh, showed trust in God and God acting. I, I, I almost don't want to do this, one, because I don't want you to think more of me than you should. I had nothing to do with what happened. I was just there. Or that this is the only way you should do evangelism. But out of seminary, I went to a church in South Carolina, Shannon Forest Presbyterian Church. I was a teacher and also was an assistant pastor there. They sent me to Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale to learn the Evangelism Explosion Program, which was very popular about 50 years ago. So they wanted me to teach this program in their church. There were four men, they were all elders, who signed up. So we had instruction, they memorized what they needed to. And then for about 10 weeks, I took one man every night of the week. I was out four nights a week with a different elder each night for 10 weeks. And we prayed, God, just give us people to talk to. And I remember the very first guy I was with, his name was Jim. And he was really an outgoing guy and everything. And he was a little bit nervous as, as I was. And we're, we knocked on a bunch of doors in the neighborhood around the church. And people weren't interested or they didn't answer. And then we, oh, one person opens the door and she says, Jim. And he says her name. And she said, what are you doing here? And he says, well, we're from the, you know, Santa Forest Christian Church. We're just here trying to talk to people about you know, what we believe and tell them about the church and so forth. She said, well, come on in. And I offered a sweet tea or a Coke. And we sat and talked for about an hour and a half. And I said, I just can't believe it. You know, you of all people would be at my door. But every single night, four nights a week for 10 weeks, that happened with different men would knock on the door. Hey, what, what are you doing here? It was just, uh, it was amazing. And we had an opportunity to share the gospel with people. And not everybody became a believer by any means. There were a lot of people who said, no, I, I know what you're saying, but I don't want that. I don't want that. I have things I want to do. And he said, okay, and we leave it at that. We tried not to be crazy. We tried not to be pushy. We tried to simply be able to share the gospel. 
Now, the evangelism explosion, evangelism explosion program is still in use today. It's one of the, the methods of evangelism we teach at the LAMP Seminary Program. It has content. You talk about God. You talk about man. You talk about Christ. You talk about faith. You talk about sin. You talk about faith. So you share a content with people, and you're asking them to believe. You can do all these things and still have pretty terrible things happen to you. During the same time period in history, about 1655 to 1680, there was a time in Scotland called the Killing Time. What did Scottish Presbyterians want? They wanted to, to be Presbyterians, basically. They didn't want to be part of the, 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 the Anglican Church of England. So because of that, the King of England sent in British troops, English troops. They killed pastors. They would kill people who would not assent to become Anglicans. And during that time, it's estimated that about 18,000 people were killed. Scottish Presbyterians, people who today probably would be part of our church if they were alive today. They killed the pastors first, and the ruling elders had to take over. They'd meet in barns, they'd meet out in fields, trying to be out of the view of any English troops. But 18,000 people were killed. And roughly in the same time period in France, across the English Channel, Louis XIV decided he didn't want any Protestants in France. So he issued an edict that nobody could be a Protestant. Now, a lot of those Protestants at the time were called Huguenots, which means they believed in the Reformed faith. They were Reformed Christians. And so more than 200,000 Huguenots were exiled. Some were killed. Others left the country. Some went over to England. Some went to Switzerland. They left their houses. They left their businesses. They left everything except what they could probably carry on a cart. 200,000. Now, some people think that because of that, this is kind of like the middle class, if you will. A lot of tradespeople, merchants, and all of this, because it's sort of all that was just wiped out of the country. It led to a lot of economic hardships, which in turn led to the French Revolution. Uh, you can look all that up yourself. Um, but that's a lot of people. That's about half the population of the Fox Valley. Just get out. You're not welcome anymore. So what do we do? We always do what is right, and we always be obedient to God's commands. Doing what is wrong and doing sin is always easier in the short run, but it's not in the long run. The long run, always be obedient. Try to do your best to do what God has commanded you. Trust him, act in a way which is appropriate, and allow him to use you in whatever way you or he, seem, he sees fit. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we, we marvel at the faith of these people that we mentioned, Moses' parents, Moses himself, the Israelites, the two batches of Israelites, Rahab. They knew far less than we did. 
we know more than Moses because we have the complete written word, completed scripture. Father, help us like them to act by faith and to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.